Canuck Central Wednesday. It's Dan Riccio and Satyar Shah. We are live from the Langley Event Center, the site of the Vancouver Giants and Everett Silvertips getting ready for Game 3 of their first-round series in the WHL playoffs. We will uh, talk more about that game later on, but uh, the focus to start the show, as always, is on your Vancouver Canucks. And this... Canuck Central is presented by your local Grip Auto entire location. Friendly service and expert advice are waiting for you at gripauto.ca today. Sat, uh, we were on the post game last night, started to dissect the Canuck season a little bit, but now a day later we get to do that even more as this Canucks team and this Canucks fan base really starts to look at what the next steps are. Yeah, it, it does kind of turn towards the off season. What is next? What is the future of the head coach? What's going to be the future of key players? How does this team become a contender long term? How do you create cap space? And oh yeah, by the way, who do you draft this season? Yep. And even before that, what about the draft lottery? That's uh, <laughs> that's a lot to think about, and it's only a couple months away. Um, you know, there's a lot of other teams are thinking about NHL playoffs. But we're going to go through, and you can chime in, 650-650 on the Dunbar Lumber text line for our live listeners, also on podcast, of course. But is the biggest priority in the next few days, weeks, figuring out Bruce Boudreau, Sat? Yeah, and when it comes to Bruce Boudreau and his future, this is something this organization, I believe, wants to get figured out in pretty short order. Something we mentioned you know, a few weeks back that I don't foresee this dragging on at all, that they want to get clarity and have this figured out. And I wouldn't be surprised at all that we have this figured out by the time they meet with the media when the season ends or close to that time. And I'd say we're that at that close. point. Yeah, and, and, and I honestly, I think that with Boudreaux, I wouldn't be surprised if a team does make a decision here and agrees to something with him. By the time the end of the season press conference happens, yeah. state of union by the coaches and management on Monday. Like, it wouldn't surprise me. Yeah. That's kind of the stage, I believe. I think they want to have, even if it's not figured out, they want to know it's headed in that direction. Because yeah. I don't think this team wants to be heading into the offseason with any uncertainty. And if they are going to be looking for a new coach, they want to start it right away. Yeah, that would be kind of a big question mark. And even just... Look, I, I get the record, and it's great. Um, it's maybe not as great as some people think. They were still outside of the top ten when it came to points percentage. They were, like, incredibly better than they were before. But, you know, not exactly um, top five material. Better in the Western Conference. A lot of the teams ahead of them, though, admittedly, uh, were Eastern Conference clubs. But... Bruce Boudreaux has brought an incredible, an incredibly different feel to the entire organization. Never mind the X's and O's on the ice. Those, as we've said so many times, that there's only so many things coaches can do to change systems. It's tweaks, it's mentality, things like that, that uh, end up making the difference. But he had to kind of rebuild the psyche of this team from rock bottom Mm -hmm. because they were so down in the dumps and his ability to change the thought process of certain players to trust certain players in different situations 
to bring a more um, easygoing vibe around the club, whether it's actually like that in the room every single day, who knows? But it did, and of course it's easier when you're winning, but everything Bruce did, not just on the ice, but I think off the ice, started a um, just a, a different vision for the Vancouver Canucks. It, it truly did. And one of the things that he has set in is kind of that mentality and that standard that we talk so much about. What is your identity and what is, what do you want to do above all else as an organization and as a team? And what he really mentioned towards the end here is, you know what, want to be a team that hates losing more than they like winning. And they're getting closer to being someone like that. And they're close to being a club that is getting, that has that type of mentality. And that's just from a, hey, determination and desire standpoint, but also truly what you want to play like. When he instills an identity as far as playing style and really harped on that all season and became instilled towards the end. And also as far as what the expectations should be in terms of being self-starters. And he really made it clear. He said, hey, this is not about, you know, just me because I've done everything I can do. This starts with these guys. And really impressing the point that if you guys want to take that next step, there has to be some real growth within you individually as how you self-start as an individual, but also how you hold yourselves accountable as a group. And that has to happen within that room. And he can encourage it all he wants, but at some point, the onus falls on those individuals as well. And he's done his part. I think what he's really trying to get across now is, now you guys got to do your part. Yeah. And uh, as as mentioned off the top of the show, uh, things moving in a positive direction for Bruce Boudreaux, continuing his stay with the Vancouver Canucks, and something could be settled as uh, soon as when they do their end-of-season media avails. My, that would be next Monday. So keep an eye out for that, and we'll keep you up to date on anything we get in here at Canuck Central. You know, when it comes to Boudreaux and just the idea of changing the feel around the club, you heard from Quinn last night how much he feels the culture has come along. You hear from JT Miller, who just spoke to us last night right after the game and also uh, just spoke to Ian McIntyre and talking about a lot more openly how much he likes it in Vancouver and wants to stay in Vancouver. When we were getting close to the trade deadline, Sad, he was not nearly as committal. but He was very guarded when asked the question. Yes. So you, it makes me wonder if not just the idea of, hey, we had some success, but they've got their star players buying in on on what the plan is here. It seems that way, but also how a player feels. And it was very clear the previous regime loved JT Miller. They went out and traded for him, and they, they valued him a lot. I wonder if the point has been impressed more organizationally to his value and how he views himself within that and the messages that he's kind of received and what he's seen from not just the coaching staff, but also this new management group and how much they truly value him and how they very much view him as the straw that stirs the drink and as a almost irreplaceable leader and an, and a important, I'd say, I wouldn't say he's the consciousness of the team, but he's definitely the the heart of the team as far as where the desire comes from and who sets the, who really sets the tone for that group. And He's for the team, heartbeat of the team. He is, and I think that's a better way of putting it. Thanks. But 
I think that's a great, a big part of it. And when you're an important player, but also the heartbeat of the team, like you mentioned, it's very difficult to remove that. And when a team makes it clear that they understand that that's what you are, and then you flourish the way he does, and he's been around. He played for the Rangers. Mm-hmm. He was with the Tampa Bay Lightning. But he's never had this type of role where he's playing 20 minutes a game. And like he mentioned, he's emotionally and emotionally invested in every single situation because he gets to play in every single situation. And this is something that he's always wanted. And then you're going to know you're going to make money. All of a sudden you feel better about your yeah. future prospects. That's all of a sudden maybe the makings of a player perhaps wanting to take a bit less to stay here. This is what makes this offseason so difficult, Sat. And it's not just... Um, they've got the salary cap to manage and all these different things, expiring contracts on Miller and, and Horvat and a tricky situation with Brock Besser for next year. Like all those things are valid and, and make sense, sure. But you have to make some really difficult decisions and also sell whatever players are staying here that this is part of the plan to keep this thing moving forward. Because we know a couple of years ago when, you know, Ho-hum, Toffoli, Markstrom, Tanev, all left. We need like a bell every time we mention that moment in Canucks history. (laughs) But it really damaged uh, how certain players felt about the direction of the team and where they were headed, especially after they made the little bit of a playoff run in the Edmonton bubble. But similar this year. Like, now that I'm thinking about it, you know, they go 105-point pace right now with Bruce Boudreaux. You have a decision to make. Are you going to keep this coach or not? How would the players feel? <laughs> you know, after after going through the war with, with Boudreaux day in and day out and fighting tooth and nail to last until game 80, how would they feel if you don't come through with an extension for Bruce Boudreaux? How would the fan base feel if you don't come through with an extension for Bruce Boudreaux? And the idea of, look, you have to make a big decision, of course, and players have to be understanding that the salary cap may force your hand in making a big decision to shake this core a little bit, also results in the overall six of the last seven years you haven't made the playoffs. That includes a lot of these core players haven't still been good enough. So you expect some level of change there as well, but selling everybody on all of these things would be very difficult. That's why, number one, you can't let go of Bruce Boudreaux. you got to do whatever it takes to bring him back. Uh, it just... Like that's just the reality of the situation right now. I don't see I don't see any other world. I don't see any future where that could have been acceptable to happen. And it's it's good to hear that now they are committing or at least getting closer to making that ultimately the way forward. Yeah, and you're right about if you're bringing say JT back, you obviously have you know the core group that's played a lot better under Boudreaux, and then you like go of him and then bring in a new rookie head coach well what that does is breaks a little bit of trust of Mm -hmm. course and then it creates a little apprehension heading into a new situation with a new head coach and ultimately if you truly believe that's what this team needs you got to do it as management team because you can't worry about how these guys necessarily feel if your vision is different you can't worry about their feelings this team worried too much about players feelings and made a lot of mistakes over the years with those things and weren't able to deliver ultimately and ended up shooting themselves in the foot with some of those decisions so don't make decisions for the group individually make the decision you think is the best but ultimately it's galaxy braining it if you think bringing boudreaux back is not the optimal move yeah again 
Are you going to be able to find a coach you can guarantee is going to be here for five years if it's not Boudreaux? No. Can you guarantee a new young young and up-and-coming coach is even going to last two years nope. or three years? You can't. So that's putting the cart ahead of the horse if you think you, you, there's an ideal, long-term, better coach somewhere. Travis and, Green at five years was one of the longest tenured head coaches in the league yes. before he got let go. It doesn't stay – like, the tenure doesn't matter. And no. especially when you head into uh, – for an organization that's had a number of new coaches in a row, and now Boudreaux comes in and has a lot of success and shows the different standard that he's able to instill right away, it's just too foolish to walk away from that. And ultimately, that's kind of where I see them being at. It's uh, Canuck Central. So that's priority number one for the Vancouver Canucks. Making sure a future is there for Bruce Boudreaux. Uh, Colin in the Caribou listening live. If they don't bring Bruce back, ownership will lose any credibility they have left. He and his supporting staff are the right coach for the market, and that's saying something. We are a tough, bleeping fan base. Yeah, I mean, uh, he's right. I don't believe, though, this comes down to ownership. Yeah. Ownership hired Boudreaux. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and yep. if, you, if there's anything you want, if there's anything that you want is that you want to show that the guy you hired is the right guy. And if anything, ownership would want a Boudreaux to come back because the hire, Rutherford gave the okay, but he made it very clear that it was Francesco asking him about Boudreaux, what he thought. So Francesco is very much front and center in hiring Bruce Boudreaux. Yeah. So I don't think this has anything to do with ownership. If he's not back, this simply comes down to management and the decision they're making on the head coach. Yeah. But like I said before, you know, we've been talking about this for a while, but, you know, obviously it's been reported that it's more likely that Boudreaux comes back than not. I've been mentioning that for a couple of weeks, and I wouldn't be surprised if something gets done by the time he meets with the media for the end of conference, end of season news conference on Monday. Yeah, and uh, it's it, it really has trended in that direction. So with all that said, beyond Boudreaux, what are the next steps for this team? Where do they go from here and we talked a little bit about this on the post game show last night but thinking about it more today and looking at the salary cap picture and this is why it's such a difficult offseason for the Vancouver Canucks but you have Hughes playing at an elite level for a good number Mm -hmm. you have an elite level goaltender playing at an elite number (laughs) given what goalie contracts are around the league and how other goalies have been living up to them you'll have four more years left on Demko you'll have five more years left on Hughes Pedersen was playing up to his contract for the last half season maybe even a little bit less than that so you're pretty confident that Pedersen found a gear that he can carry into next year with a full training camp full summer to get ready for it all of those things but you only have two years left on Pedersen at 735 mm-hmm. and if he's playing like he was at the end of the season over the course of 82 games you've got one hell of a player and one hell of an expensive player and that's going to have to factor into your salary cap picture the more I thought about it sat the reset button not a big one You want to stay competitive next year, but I think maintaining flexibility for next summer, not 
this one upcoming, but the next one, I think that's where you try to optimize this group, get rid of some of the dead weight, and then really try to set yourself up for a big summer and going full force in Pedersen's final year of this bridge contract. Well, that makes a lot of sense. And also, everything we talk about this year, they can't improve this year because everything that they do this year is setting the table for either the offseason that's coming up, like you mentioned, or even beyond that if you want to take an even longer-term approach. And that kind of comes down to which avenue this new management team will take this organization this offseason. But this this offseason is going to be about getting through next year to setting yourself up for the future one way or another. And when this team made the bet they made on Oliver Ekman Larson and Connor Garland and the free agent signings they, they made, it was essentially a two-year commitment. Yeah. That this group for two years, because you don't have flexibility to do anything above it. Like This is the group for two years, unless you decide to blow it up. So it's this year and next year. Next year, you can blow it up, but you're not really able to get better next season because you have to take a step back if that's what you're looking to do. So you're right. It comes down to that third year. But what's interesting about this offseason is two guys, J.T. Miller and Bo Horvat. Yeah. Because for all that stuff about loading up, that discussion, I think, happens after you figure out what you're doing with those two guys. And I've been saying for a while that J.T. Miller is the guy you got to figure out first because that's the biggest number you're probably dealing with one way or another. But I wouldn't be surprised if the organization tackles the Bull Horvat one first. Interesting. Is there more certainty there? You're more likely to get a favorable number with Bo than you are with J.T. Yeah. If you are, let's say, able to get the number you really, really want, and you get that done before you start negotiations with JT, maybe you have a bit more confidence about the number you want to hold firm to. Yeah. And I'm just wondering here. It, mm-hmm. But I get the sense that they could tackle the Bull Horvat contract first. And if they do tackle the Bull Horvat contract first, then it's going to be interesting to see what that does to the JT Miller discussions. I... um. <laughs> I think that's fascinating. And and those two players are the ones, yes, Besser's contract is more pertinent, but I think those two players are the ones that are most obviously kind of in the crosshairs mm-hmm. this offseason because of the massive decisions and the big contracts they both have earned with the way that they've played. JT, we know where the comp is, Mika Zibanejad. Bo Horvat's 31-goal season does change kind of where the projection is for him a little bit Mm -hmm. because he scores more than a Ryan Nugent Hopkins. He scores more than a Kevin Hayes who got seven sheets in, in Philadelphia over seven years. I mean, that's that's a pretty big number for Bo going into his mid-30s. The ideal comp is more like Nugent Hopkins. Yeah. Where I can stomach an eight-year deal with Bo if we're talking about $45 million total value and under, or in that kind of range. I don't want to get into a number that starts with a six if I'm going eight years, personally. But he has every right to be asking for more, given he's got the 30-goal season on his resume now. 
as much as we talk about AAV and and all those sort of things, ultimately for these contracts, it's total money that matters. Yeah. And when you talk to NHL agents, they always say it's about the total money more than anything yep. else. And especially for these guys that are hitting UFA and have a chance to get one final contract. Yep. Well, and, like, you know, okay, Jay Beagle, right? He's maybe getting $3 million on the market from somebody else. Why did the Canucks get him? They added a fourth year. Now he's getting $12 million total rather than $9 million. Exactly. And, yeah, maybe somebody was giving a little slightly higher AAV, but, mm-hmm. hey, you get some extra money, and it's about the total money, yeah. ultimately. So, and I think you touched on a figure. For Bo, if you're Bo, you're not accepting anything, not a penny less than $36 million. He just came off a contract where he got just over 30 about $32 million or yep. so, $5.5 million per year over six years. At the, at the starting point is six times six, and that's only a small raise on a guy that's hitting UFA as a center. So thirty-six million is is the bare minimum for you to offer him without it being a slap in the face. The number where you probably land is probably forty-five. Yeah. How do you make forty-five million work? How many years do you spread that over? Does he want fifty, or does he want about forty, forty-five? For JT, the total money for me kind of falls in the fifty to fifty-five million dollar range. Now, if he goes elsewhere, maybe a team is willing to give him $60 million total money, 8 times 8 or whatever it is. Like, we're talking advantage ad money and everything. If that's out there, I don't think Vancouver's doing that. Yeah. But that's the total money I look at for Bo. Can you get him signed? 40 to 45? And JT in the $50 million range. And if you get Bo done first, so this is what the organization's thinking, to get Bo done first and have certainty, then it makes it easier for you to draw a line in the JT Miller discussions. Well, and the reason... This, so one advantage the Canucks have is adding the eighth year to a deal, right? Because if those guys hit free agency, they can only get seven years from another team. So seven years at five and a half is different from eight years at five and a half. Obviously, again, it comes down to the total value of the contract. And the future salary cap picture does depend on those two players and what that next contract looks like for either of them i don't see a world where you can survive losing both i mean you can but that means likely means you're taking a longer term uh shake up with this group or you're really banking on petterson carrying the mail through the middle of the ice or third option would be you find or get a really good young center you're excited about in whatever deals you make for those players. But I think the priority is to keep one and potentially both. If the, the what not not the priority is, I think the priority should be to keep one or both, but then you have to figure out where you're shedding money elsewhere, that being Besser, Myers, whatever. Is that the ideal situation yeah. that I'm about to present here? Yep. And I'm not necessarily saying I'm not saying they should do this. But I wonder if it's in play that you get Bo done and you don't come to an agreement with JT. Yeah. But you don't move him. Interesting. That you head into next season, Bo done, so you got that figured out. You, you go have Philip JT. Forsberg on it? You go Philip Forsberg on it. Let's say you do end up moving, say, Garland or, or Besser. But your team's not any different from what it is this year. No. You're probably a playoff team. We're on the verge of being so. And you see what type of year JT has. And you know, you know, hey, you come to the deadline, you got to make a decision, and that's yeah. that's a hard game to play. But what what have we said about JT right now? It's going to be impossible for you to get a contract. You have no leverage in a JT discussion outside of you can offer him 
eight, eight years and that you can start talking contract with him now. That's yeah. the only leverage you have compared to other teams. But if next season he's not as prolific, it's hard for him to have an ask that's a bit higher. If you truly want to keep JT, are your chances better at signing him to a team-friendly number this offseason or during the season? And if you don't, he becomes the best asset of the trade deadline. Yeah. Hey, I'm not saying they're going to do this. I'm not saying they should do this. But if you get Bo done, that becomes a possibility. And you can kind of hedge your bets again heading into the season. It's going to be very nerve-wracking for a lot of fans. It'll be a discussion point all season. But I don't think we can dismiss it as an impossible scenario. It's um, the latest quote from JT Miller. Um, it's definitely exciting. He's about the end of the season under Bruce Boudreau and, and how the team finished. It's definitely exciting. It's amazing when you see the first half of the year and it's just so negative. There was nothing much positive going on, and so your mind can start to go other places. But I want to win here. My best friends are here. My teammates are here. We want to win here, and I want to win here. I've said that the whole time when I got asked these questions. That's my main focus, winning with this group, and it's very, very exciting to see how far we've come. That's in uh, Ian McIntyre's latest at sportsnet.ca. So JT Miller sending out the, the bat signal. That he likes Vancouver. And what did his agent tweet out a while back? Show me the money. Show me the money. It just comes down to money. I, I, hey, he, you know what it, it does show, though? And I don't think it's lip service because he said the same similar things to us last night when he joined us yep. on the postgame show. He said, you know, he was talking about next season and yep. how they want to be, how he wants to be back, how motivated he is, how much he believes in this group in a far different tone, as you mentioned, than the one he had around the deadline and before that when asked about the future and when he talked about the future. And yeah, he said, I'm talking yeah. about, I'm, I'm worried about the game. And you can, you know, you can just say that, hey, all he thought about at the time was the games and the season. He wasn't thinking ahead. Now that he's thinking ahead, he's being a bit more open about it. You have to, you yeah. have to entertain that as a, as a possibility through all this. But I would say it's notable. And what it does show is he is more than willing to have discussions with this organization this offseason about what an extension would look like. It's uh, going to cost you quite a bit, given he is a top 10 scorer in the league and uh, has two more games to get to 100 points as uh, he currently sits on 97 after scoring his 31st goal of the year last night. You know, Eight sheets is a lot for JT Miller, eight million bucks per season. He has every right to be asking that. And the other idea, and we've talked about this before, but when he was on with us in the postgame show last night, he talked about loving his role here, being able to play in every situation, but also really becoming a leader Mm -hmm. and really loving that, that, is on his shoulders. And as we've talked about, he goes to Colorado, he goes elsewhere, he's not necessarily getting that role. He's back to where he was in Tampa, maybe. Maybe a little bit higher up the lineup than he was in Tampa, but he's not the guy. Where here in Vancouver, he is definitely one of the guys. Yeah, and if family is happy too, and yep. that matters. And when you've traveled around, those are the reasons a player would want to stay and perhaps take a little bit less. Now, there's a separate conversation to be had about whether that's prudent to do, <laughs> you know, yeah. signing both guys to long-term deals, but, but definitely something that the team will explore.
It's uh, Canucks Central. We'll have to dive into that. A lot of off-season to get to over the next few months here on the show. But coming up next, Kevin Woodley. He'll assess Thatcher Demko's season. Just how good was it? But also, were the Canucks actually better defensively this year, or was it all down to Demko? We'll get to that next on Canucks Central. Canuck Central, a presentation of your local Grip Auto entire location. Friendly service and expert advice are waiting for you at gripauto.ca today. Dan Richo and Satyar Shaw. Kevin Woodley is going to join us in a few minutes, but just want to get into a couple of these texts here. What is next for the Vancouver Canucks? Talked about, can you bring back Bo and JT? This text, 100% signed Bo and JT. This team needs those two players Unload Brock for a stud young defenseman. Try to shed Pullman Dickinson salary. Also, Vancouver needs to get into a position going forward that winning in the playoffs are automatic, just like 2010, 11, and 12. That is um, a very optimistic point of view of the next steps for the Vancouver Canucks. Yeah, very easy. Just uh, make sure you get that stud defenseman <laughs> for Brock. And then, yeah, moving Pullman and Dickinson. Yeah. Just, just like, like that. that. That's <laughs> Done. simple. Simple to do. You do those things, and Bob's your uncle. Uh, another text. Please do not sign either Bo or JT for seven, eight years. Too long. And, you know, it's... I don't disagree because, yes, uh, for either player, you wonder what value they would bring into their mid-30s towards the end of seven- or eight-year deals. But sometimes that's the cost of doing business. No, it is. But at the same time, this is why I'm so reluctant, if I was in charge, to lock up Miller, Bo, long-term, into their 30s alongside yeah. Oliver Eichmann Larson, who's into his 30s long-term on a big number. Because how likely are you to get excess value on those three contracts? You're not getting it on Oliver Eichmann Larson, and I no. still like OEL, and I think next year in a different role he can produce more points, and he's solid and everything, for sure. But it's going to be hard to be worth 7.26 for six more years. It's going to be hard for JT and Bo, when they're 33, to be worth whatever contract they sign, or at least be worth more than whatever you sign them to. They might be worth the money, mm-hmm. but you're not getting excess value on it. And then don't forget, you got to pay Patterson, like you mentioned. Hughes has a big ticket. All of a sudden, all your big money long-term commitments are being made. So you've already committed to this is your group, essentially. And that makes me a little bit nervous for a group that hasn't accomplished enough. Yeah. And if they had like a history of more accomplishments, maybe I'd feel a bit better about making that bet on those guys. And you know, I saw people make the Boston comparison to us previously where they say, hey, look at the Bruins. They kept all their young guys, all their best players. Well, you know why? Because those guys had success. Yeah. You could convince them to stay. They took a little bit less. It made sense for you to commit to those guys, the Marchands, the Bergerons, and David Krejci's at the time. They brought Pasternak into that group all of a sudden. But you had to have success for you to believe in that and those guys taking a little bit less. And I just feel... The if you're signing Bo to a long-term deal and Miller to a long-term deal and you have OEL long-term, it's just way too fraught with peril in my estimation. Uh, the other part about that, like Marshawn and Bergeron are kind of walking into the Hall of Fame. And they're still playing at that, at that superstar level. Yeah, still. so they're kind of unicorns uh, in that sense. 
Uh, joining us now on Canuck Central, In Goal Magazine and NHL.com. He's our goalie guru. It's Kevin Woodley. Uh, the season is done, Kevin, and uh, the Canucks have just fallen short. Your quick thought on how the season played out. Um, geez, like there's way too many sort of <laughs> There's no way to have arcs. a quick thought. Like, yeah. I don't like how can you have a quick given the amount of story arcs involved in the Canucks season this year, like the plot lines and, and yeah. the way they shifted so wildly. I'm not sure I can have a quick thought. I mean, at the end of the day, um, they weren't as bad as they started. Um, don't know if they're as good as they finished, but you add them together and it just wasn't good enough. So, um, I'm I'm fascinated, like a lot of people, to see where the new management and the new regime takes this group. Uh, one sort of comment that jumps out to me from Jim Rutherford's initial availability, and it's sort of been in the back of mind the whole time, is like talking about how, you know, one or two moves, the right one or two guys in or out in an off season can make the difference between a turnaround or going in the other direction. So obviously there's a lot of speculation on what those one or two moves might be given their cap situation, how big a name it could be. But like a lot of people, I'm just sort of sitting and waiting and fascinated to see how this all plays out, how they manage the good parts on this roster. And there are still a lot of them Um, manage that around the salary cap and try and come up with an answer that allows them to be better regardless of, of how they finished, be better overall this season. Because in my opinion, as impressive as the turnaround was, you know, they still fell short and in the crucial weeks, you know, did so directly um, when you stacked them up against uh, the teams we truly consider cup contenders. So on that, you know, that thought of, are they as good as you know the what they showed under Bruce Boudreaux, essentially? A 105-point pace, uh, right on the fringe of top 10 in the league during that time frame. And what has been surprising to me about the Canucks all year is their top five in goals against at 5-on-5. Five five. Their save percentage is best in the league at 5-on-5, five five. but it's not as though they're at least from the public data at Natural Statric, you know, they're kind of middle of the pack in terms of chances given up and and expected goals against and those sorts of things. How much better was this team defensively than last season, say? Or was it mostly on the goaltending and mainly Thatcher Demko that they did end up as a top-five team in goals against at 5-on-5? I, I think it's largely on the back of Patrick Demko. And I should point out Yaroslav Halak, who has, ends the season assuming it's over for him with one of the lowest expected save percentages in the league. And despite the two-start blip where he was uncharacteristically bad, um, still ends up sort of, I think, 12th or 13th in the league in adjusted save percentage. So not just Thatcher Demko. Um, listen, uh, top five in terms of where they finish in those metrics it's not quite bottom five from an expected goals perspective, but it's not far from it. 25th in the league, uh, five on five expected goals against from Clearside Analytics. And the number that means the most to me, because it's been, you know, especially in, in recent years, so directly tied to playoff success, um, high danger chances at five on five. Again, 25th in the league. So this is not, not even a middling team defensively. Um, this is a bottom 10 team, bottom eight team defensively. 
Uh, and you know, when I, ch- when I changed the dates on it to go from the whole season to when Bruce Boudreau took over, um, there isn't much a change in that performance. Like they did not get better defensively under Bruce mm-hmm. Boudreau. They just continued to get, uh, and maybe even more so under Bruce, uh, really high end goaltending. So uh, as much as the focus will be on what one of these big names and high priced forwards goes out to create cap space, the real question is how do you fix this back end? Um, and fix some of the, these defensive metrics. Because even if you're able to win at the rate they were winning, everything about these underlying defensive numbers say you are going to be early exiting the Stanley Cup playoffs. Um, the teams that are at the top of the list, the contenders, the Boston, Carolina, Florida, Colorado, um, you know, Minnesota's in there actually. But like I just read out your top five in five-on-five high-danger chances against. And again, year over year, in head-to-head matchups in a playoff series, it's the team on the right end of that ledger that tends to have success more often than not, right down to the Montreal Canadiens being um, one of only two teams that were better than the Toronto Maple Leafs last season in this exact same metric, um, getting by the Leafs. And then, frankly, from every matchup from then on till the cup final, they were dom Like, as much as they were an underdog by every other piece of analysis this number held them as a favorite and it panned out all the way to the cup final until they ran ran into tampa bay who when they won their first cup absolutely owned this metric so um you know you can go to st louis the year that the year that they won the cup uh they were top in this metric and then in the subsequent years have fallen off the map they're going to be a real interesting case study for me this year like based on these numbers they should be an early exit we'll see if it pans out um, and see if this trend continues. And if it does, these playoffs, then again, I think that just further reinforces the point. Yes, you've got a stud goaltender. Um, and maybe that'll be enough to get you, if you get in, to, to, to upset somebody in the playoffs. We saw, we saw them put a scare into Vegas a couple of years ago in the bubble. Um, but the, the, the numbers, the history says, unless you get better in this area, in, in, in this sort of underlying number in this defensive performance um you're not going to have playoff success frankly and so this should be a little more worrisome to people i think than some of the raw numbers they like to tie out about their defensive performance um you know i just think that's largely a product of goaltending well and also because a lot of those raw numbers and even if you look at just the high danger scoring chance and shot differentials just by you know the, the traditional metrics they have the Canucks at about league average this year in those differentials which is far better than what, where they've been but what you're able to do with the numbers you have is contextualize what happens before those high danger shots and when you have as many seam passes and east-west passes before shots as the Canucks give up that's where the issue is and to me what, the, what that tells me more than anything is that the Canucks are capped out at limiting some of those chances, but their defensive IQ deficiencies prevent them from being able to limit the quality of those chances and knowing what to do once they are in the defensive end. And as simple as sometimes having the stick in the right position, what kind of angle you take. And that's ultimately the biggest issue players have that are deficient defensively. And I think that's what we're seeing. And, and I don't think it's a surprise, but the type of defensemen they need more than anything. Yeah, they need puck movers. They also need guys that have high IQ defending. They don't have a ton of those guys in this roster. Yeah, and that's why I think the one thing you did see improvement, and again, like the, the numbers didn't shift dramatically, but um, I thought some of those habits, uh, from an eye test perspective at least, when you watch them, you know, I just thought as, as, as Bradshaw got a stronger voice as this year went on, especially at least on the penalty kill, 
um, that's where there was a market improvement, um, both in terms of the some of the underlying numbers, um, not to the same degree uh, as 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 the end results, but um, you know you you can to a certain extent improve the process and improve those numbers, um, but the question becomes to what extent, Sat? Like like mm-hmm. how much better can you make them just with habits and teaching and making mistakes on the proper side of the puck, not getting caught on the rocks, like those types of things, not giving up the rush chances, not getting caught with bad pinches, like those types of things. Yeah. You can mitigate this to an extent. I'm just, I'm, I'm not sure that you can do it. Like, I don't know that you can bury trots this thing, right? Like, I don't know that you can come in and, just by messaging and just by focal points and points of emphasis turned this group into an elite defensive team. That said, like we see what Trotz did in it with the Island. We've seen, we've seen Toronto since the, the coaching change to Sheldon keep like for all the heat they take in the playoffs. Again, there was only one team last year that was, or two teams that were better than them in this metric. And they just happened to meet one of them in the first round. And they got carry priced a little bit, right? So, um, you know, there are other teams that have improved that process with high-end skilled players. I guess the question will be what, which one of those got, that group is back and how much effort is put in. Because we've heard Rutherford say he doesn't mind the back end, so I'm curious to see um, what kind of tweaks he feels are needed. Or I should say Patrick Calvin, I guess, will be making those decisions, but it was Jim that that talked about not minding the back end uh, as for all the criticism that it's received. So I feel um, for some, and it shouldn't be this way, but maybe the way Thatcher Demko uh, had played last week um, changes the overall thought of his season for some. Uh, Is he still a Vesna candidate for you, as you alluded to last week? Yeah, you know what? It's funny. Like, he should be. Like, one week should not destroy a really good season. Um, but the numbers that sort of put him, you know, put him third in the league behind Shesterkin and Saros in, you know, in, in goals saved above expected. Like, like last week was bad, right? Like, and you saw what happened against good teams when they didn't have Demko at their best, you know, clearly yeah. playing through something. Clearly the back-to-back situation did not help playing both. He wasn't himself. And without him and himself, you know, at that level, this is what you're left with. And unfortunately for him, um, you know, like that knocked almost those two games knocked, uh, almost looks like almost five goals off his, off his goal saved above expected, dropped him from third in the league behind Shesterkin and Saros all the way to seven. So I still think he's in the, like, it's Shesterkin like with a bullet, it's Saros in second place. And if, if anybody tells you different, they're, you know, they're, they're just wrong. Um, but beyond that, it was, you know, Sorokin and Demko. Demko was at the top of the next group. Sorokin, Markstrom, Huso, Vasilevsky, Kemper, Freddie Anderson, sort of all in that mix, and Demko had the edge overall. Well, he no longer does. He's down to seventh, and I would expect the combination of that um, with the fact that Markstrom made the playoffs, with the fact that he has those nine shutouts, as much as I've, you know, told you guys about the caveat that comes with two goalies with a 2.0 goals against average. One guy's got nine shutouts and the other guy has one. That means the guy with nine had, you know, what, four, uh, four more games where he let in four and more. Um, so there's a consistency question that comes with that. But I would think that it ends up going to a guy like Jacob Markstrom. 
or maybe even by default, Andre Vasilevsky, who Thatcher Demko is like basically neck and neck with right now from a goal save perspective. Yeah, and I mean, you know, I know one thing that you kind of mentioned, just kind of building off that, and you kind of just talked about the, the higher-end goalies in the league. Is that group not as big as you thought it would be by the end of the season compared to where we maybe thought it would be? Yeah, it, it's been a weird year. Um, and I've talked about how I think uh, a lot of the parading of the increase in scoring is a little dangerous because I don't think it's going to be sustainable because of all the scheduled losses we've seen around the league with some of the ridiculous three and fours and, you know, five and sevens. And, you know, like, what was Seattle's trip last week? Like, back-to-back, yeah. mini in Dallas? Like, really? Come on. So when they got up to that 2 nothing lead in Dallas and everyone, everybody who was chasing Dallas got excited, I'm like, you realize this is the crack and playing back to back on a ridiculous travel schedule like there's too many nights like that and so i i think that weighs into you know some of these discussions around goaltending like yeah you're right like the, the top 10 um the shesterkins uh the markstroms the soros the vasilevsky demsko anderson kemper um you know, it feels like it's a smaller group but look at the heater that mike smith's on like, would you want to face them and him in the first round this year with how well he's played down the stretch? And so there's a guy who, aging obviously, but missed a ton of time due to injury early on, but he looks like Mike Smith again. Um, you know, Robin Lehner was the opposite. At the beginning of the season, he was playing at a Vesna Trophy level to keep a poor defensive team riddled with injuries relevant early on. He just ran out of gas. I just think injuries have affected so many guys in different ways and the workload has affected them, that some of the names I normally expect, like Laner, to be in that conversation, despite stretches where they deserve to be, just couldn't maintain it for a whole year. And so um, it feels like there's less of them, less reliable, sort of, you know, um, guaranteed, can't miss, I want to ride this guy into the playoff, number one goalies in a year where we barely saw Carey Price. Uh, it just kind of feels like we've taken a step back there. But I do think there's a lot more ups and downs in this season that can be tied to even Halak. Like, I'm looking at it now. He's 10th in the league in adjusted save percentage, 10th. And there was a point for a couple of weeks there where the consensus was they just couldn't play this guy because he had two horrific starts. I mean, Mike Smith in Edmonton, they wanted to run him out of town. You know, just a couple of months ago, they were ready to hand the job to Mikko Koskinen. I do radio in that market, and it was just... There was a point where they wanted to get, a, get rid of Koskinen. There was a point where they wanted to get rid of Smith. And both of them turned around and had, you know, got on heaters at various points. So I just, to me, I guess as I sort of talk myself through how I feel about the whole league, the hardest thing this year has been consistency. And up until last week, and, and clearly now we know playing through injury, I actually thought that was the one thing that, as much as anything else, even the metrics said, one reason that Demko needed and deserved to be in that Vezina Trophy conversation was because of the consistency that he had throughout. Like, as focused as we were on the few down periods, it was all relative to the high standard. Like, he never bottomed out the way a lot of these guys have during various uh, stretches of this season, including Soros, including Shesterkin. Like, there was two weeks there where it looked like he'd forgotten how to play the position. Mm -hmm. Short of the two games while playing through injury, Demko didn't have those types of dips and um that's one of the reasons that up until last week i would have absolutely paraded him for the Vesna trophy i just think you know the the losses the change in the numbers and the fact they're not going to make the playoffs make it a much harder argument now uh so much we still want to get to not really a ton of time uh because i talk too much 
<laughs> so uh, I think I, we already know the answer, but should the Canucks have adjusted how much they use Demko? Uh, should they adjust it for next year? I mean, you could even look at Nashville, and you know, it looks pretty dicey, their situation with UC Soros, and we know how much they've leaned on him this year as, as well. Well, I mean, there was the example that Bruce gave for why he wasn't going to play Demko in the back-to-backs uh, here at home just last week, right? Like, yeah. UC Soros doesn't make it out of the second game, gets injured a week later. Like, that's probably not a coincidence, guys. Um, Robin Lehner can't get through the season. Frederick Anderson, Antti Ranta was hurt. And so was Alex Lyon, their first call-up option from the American Hockey League. So they rode Freddie Anderson ends up getting hurt. Like, there was a lot of talk about Igor Shesterkin and how he wasn't playing as much as other guys, and maybe he shouldn't be eligible for the heart because he doesn't have the workload uh, of, of a Soros or a Demko or a Hellebuck or even of a Markstrom. He was playing less games, so maybe he should be disqualified for those conversations. Well, who looks smarter now? The Rangers or the, guy, or the teams that were playing the wheels off their number one? Because yeah. Shesterkin had his dip. He's back on form, and he's healthy. And a lot of these other teams are going to be going into the playoffs with plan B because they played literally played the wheels off their number one goal. How surprised would you be that the Canucks bring in an, if the Canucks bring in another veteran goalie to fight for the backup job with Spencer Martin? Oh, to compete? Like, uh, so maybe I, I think of, and, and obviously this wouldn't be the name now, but can you find a guy like, and it's interesting that this is the comparable because for all the hand-wringing in Edmonton, and including people, at one point people were asking me when I was on the show that I do in Edmonton, like, how come the Oilers can't find, like, an Anton Forsberg? And I'm like, you literally had him under contract last year and lost him on waivers because <laughs> you decided you needed to keep nine defensemen and didn't want to risk losing William Lagason on waivers, so you lost Anton Forsberg. That type of guy, now he's established himself as, as an NHLer and maybe an NHL number one in Ottawa. You know, can you find the next Anton Forsberg, bring him in on a, a high price in the AHL two-way contract to compete with uh, Spencer Martin for a chance to play in the NHL, um, to be a veteran guy in the American Hockey League, the only part of that equation that doesn't make sense is you need to find minutes right now for Michael DiPietro and Artur Silov. So if you bring in that type of insurance policy slash experience guy, it's going to be at the expense of one of those two. And so the question to me becomes, are both of those guys still in the organization at, by the time we get to training camp or even into free agency? And I think that will factor into whether they feel the need to bring somebody else in. And, you know, I can say after hearing some things around the league, there are a lot of sort of names out there that, you know, a lot of people haven't heard of. Mackenzie Blackwood, you know, was offered Mm -hmm. around the league at some point this season. Ilya Samsonov with the Washington Capitals was offered around the league at various points this season. I don't know that I've heard he's been offered around the league. But I, I do have questions about Michael DiPietro being a part of this organization long-term based on some of the buzz I've heard here and there. And so if they were to, you know, part with him one way or another, then absolutely you would need to fill that void and you would try and do it with, like I said, uh, where Anton Forsberg was two years ago. That's your perfect sort of model for that spot. Um, but short of that if you've still got Silovs and DiPietro in this organization next year um, I, I think you have to be very careful um, not to further stunt their growth by having somebody as a roadblock in front of them out in Abbotsford 
Woodley, uh, always the best. Thank you. My pleasure, guys. I apologize for talking too much, but I'm just <laughs> no. excited. I go to Bandon Dunes in like 12 hours. So happy <laughs> Enjoy it. Uh, there Thanks, is uh, Kevin Woodley, our goalie guru here on Canucks Central. You're listening to Sportsnet 650.